Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles upon trout that swim, and for finches' wings. What a wonderful song of praise to life, that symphony that surrounds us like a patchwork quilt, embracing us, smothering us, being and becoming us as we are and become it. My dear friend Julie gave me this poem to read as the opening words at her wedding many years ago, and I have loved it ever since, using it at other weddings, bouncing my own poems off of it, and using it too to look back and remind me of the wonder of the many colored pieces that make up life. Hopkins' poem goes from looking detailedly at small animals to the large fields and skies and to experiences both mundane and exhilarating, all trades and all parts of trades. And finally, wondering at the whole contrasting and mysterious conglomeration of all things. Hopkins notes that all of this contradictory, constantly changing, pieced together kaleidoscope of things, big and small, are the creative movement of the changeless, constant divine. Like the hymn we sang at the beginning of the service, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, the poem speaks of the incarnation of God in all of life and celebrates it. This poem, Pied Beauty, was written by Gerard Manley Hopkins in 1877, and I am using it today because July 28th is Hopkins' birthday. He would have been 169 years old. Gerard Manley Hopkins was born in 1844 into an artistic and religious high church Anglican family in the Victorian age in England. He was a sensitive and shy person, a talented painter, and a gifted poet. He also suffered from severe depression much of his life. He was a brilliant classic student at Oxford University, and there he fell in love with another young man, but not feel free to act upon his feelings with this or with any other young man. And tragically, the young man actually died in a drowning accident only a couple of years later. At Oxford, Hopkins became attracted to the Catholic teaching of the body of Christ becoming real in the Eucharist. He converted to Catholicism and became a Jesuit priest, all of which caused great estrangement from his parents with whom he'd been so close. Feeling that his poetry competed with the fuller devotion to his religion, he gave up his poetry for seven years after joining the priesthood, actually even burning all the poems he'd ever written previously. Eventually, he realized that poetry and religion could actually complement each other, and he began writing again, including the poem Pied Beauty, though he refused 
to publish any of his poems in his lifetime. He died of typhoid fever when he was only 44, not quite reaching his 45th birthday. His last words after this tumultuous life were, I am so happy. I am so happy. I loved my life. How was it that Gerard Manley Hopkins, who had been so deeply afflicted with depression, was able to say, I am so happy, and I loved my life at the end? What is it to be happy? In writing this sermon, a snippet from a song kept going through my mind. Happiness is two kinds of ice cream, finding your skate tree, and, and then something else for the very first time. And my three younger sisters remember a time when two kinds of ice cream might have made me happy. We were on a family trip in Wisconsin, my mother's childhood home, when we were very young. Well, not actually too young, but young. <laughs> and we went to an ice cream shop that my mother used to frequent as a child. The cows being so very especially marvelous in Wisconsin. And we were each treated to an ice cream cone. There was just one scoop, one flavor per cone. This being such an exceptional ice cream, it's because of such the exceptional cows, I took an especially long time deciding which ice cream flavor to choose. I finally decided on lemon custard cream. Somehow the sound of it and its look in the barrel in this special place made me imagine that by having it, I would be whisked off to a dream cloud of summer skies and green pastures. I would connect with my mother's childhood adventure storms. There would be no more fighting in my family. There would be peace on earth. Eagerly, I took the promising ice cream cone from the ice cream scooper. My sisters were already contentedly licking and gulping their cones, talking, playing, making messes, looking around the place. I, having waited, took my first slurp. Mmm, yummy. I took a, another. Pretty good. And another. It was okay, it was fine. And another. But it wasn't amazing out of this world. I worried that somehow I might have chosen the wrong ice cream flavor. It started not to taste good at all. Where was the rapture? I should have just gotten chocolate. I knew it. Oh no, terrible. I felt like throwing it out as we wandered outside. That night, as my sisters and I lay in our bunks, I blurted out one last time. I got the wrong flavor of ice cream. Why did I get that lemon custard cream? Well, maybe if I'd been able to get two kinds of ice cream, I would have gotten one of the choices right and been happy. Or maybe I wouldn't have been simply, maybe I would have been simply, simply in a happier place because of not feeling such pressure on making the right and perfect choice. Or perhaps, of course, if I hadn't attached so much dependence for my happiness on the taste of this one ice cream cone transporting me to heaven, 
and had just enjoyed eating it in the company of my family on a nice summer day, I would have been happier. Is there a way to obtain happiness that lasts longer than an ice cream cone on a hot July day? I am reminded of another summer scene. When my niece Maya was five or six years old, she was playing around in the kiddie pool at my parents' house. It was a hot July day. She threw herself up and down and slid this way and that, sloshing herself in the water all around, sharing the space with her younger cousins and her younger sister. I am so happy, she blurted out. I am so happy. What was she experiencing in her gleeful glee, her gladful glee? And how do we obtain it? Can we? On another July day, 237 years ago, Thomas Jefferson and the other writers and declaration of the, signers of the Declaration of Independence famously proclaimed that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are an inalienable rights with which all people are endowed by their creator. It is during the age of the Enlightenment in the 16 and 1700s that Western thinkers began to see happiness, or at least the pursuit of it, as a right. Early Christian tradition had taught that happiness only comes when and if we are lucky enough to get to heaven, and the way to heaven was through suffering. Saint Augustine claimed that because of original sin, human beings are destined to pursue happiness, but without success in this life. In contrast, the thinkers of the Enlightenment asserted, we can be happy in this life. We don't have to wait for the next life. Human beings don't come into the world tainted by original sin, and in fact, through reason, we can have control over our own lives. Moreover, Enlightenment thinkers said, we can have control over our world. We can and should create society to maximize happiness. It is a more just and reasonably organized society that will bring happiness, said Rousseau. The foundation of happiness is virtue, said Jefferson. And virtue means working for the good of others and participating in the larger social realm, he said. He believed that God intended us to promote the happiness of others by acting benevolently toward all. We may not reach perfect happiness, he wrote, but we can come close to it. Jefferson was an early Unitarian, though before the word Unitarian was officially used to describe a religious group in the United States. And his thoughts on the pursuit of happiness being a right of all people resound with the Unitarian Universalist principle of the worth and dignity of all human beings. The idea that happiness of individuals is dependent upon a just and reasonable form of government suggests a recognition of the principle that we live in an interdependent web of existence. But the ideals, of course, were not the reality. Many did not enjoy the liberty to pursue happiness. Men are born free, but everywhere are in chains, proclaimed Rousseau. Sadly, some were not even born free, and even Jefferson himself had slaves. There still was, and still is, a long way to go. 
All men are created equal, states the Declaration of Independence. But African Americans were still not afforded the rights of citizens. 92 years after the Declaration of Independence, on July 28, 1868, 145 years ago today, the 14th Amendment was officially ratified, granting citizenship to African Americans and to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, and declaring that all citizens are entitled to due process and equal protection under the law. Yet, racial profiling still exists today, and African American men are imprisoned at a disproportionately greater rate than white men, and for crimes for which white men are often acquitted. We are still striving for freedom. We are still working for a just society. We are still pursuing happiness. The Enlightenment held that there was never a final end point to our search for happiness, for our attempts at our own betterment, and to create a more just social order that gives all people the freedom to strive for, cultivate, and practice happiness. The song Forward Through the Ages reflects this idea, the Unitarian idea of keeping going continually forward. Our work is never done. But again, what is happiness? And how do we pursue it? The English word for happiness comes from the old Norse word hap, meaning good luck or chance. Darren McMahon, author of Happiness, a History, and guest on WBUR's On Point, traces the history of the concept of happiness back to the ancient Greeks and Greek tragedy. In these stories, happiness is something that the gods have and not something to which human beings are entitled. We may by chance be happy, but it is not something we can control. Indeed, if we try to control it, the gods will make sure to mess up our plans. A turning point in thinking about happiness developed with Socrates. Socrates noted that all human beings want happiness and asked whether there is a way to achieve it. He philosophized that, that we have the possibility of obtaining, of obtaining happiness through living a virtuous life. Know thyself and move outwards toward others, admonished Socrates. Aristotle agreed that living a virtuous life does lead to a happy life, but he added that this does not just mean doing good, but having appropriate responses to what life gives us. In order to, to do this, he said, we need education, practice, and the community feedback. Happiness is the aim of life, but we need to work towards happiness, and it is social. Jefferson and other Enlightenment thinkers agreed and expanded this idea of happiness. Happiness is not a selfish quest, quest but comes from and results in good social relations. In our time, the Dalai Lama also, also sees seeking happiness as the purpose of life. Happiness, he says, both comes from connecting compassionately with others and leads to greater compassion for and kindness to others. To achieve happiness, says the Dalai Lama, 
We need to start by training the mind, meaning both head and heart. We need to identify which factors lead to happiness and which to suffering, and to cultivate the ones leading to happiness and eliminate the ones leading to suffering. This does not sound at all simple. How are we to know which leads to which? The Dalai Lama reminds us that this takes time, lots of time. We need to set about learning. Sounding a little like Socrates, he says we need to learn about ourselves and how negative emotions like anger and hatred are harmful to ourselves and to society and how positive emotions are helpful. Happiness, exclaims the Dalai Lama's writing partner, Howard Cutler, is, not so much, is, is to not so much to have what we want, but to want and appreciate what we have. I would have been much happier if I had remembered this when I got that lemon custard cream, ice cream cone. But letting go of attachments in order to find happiness does not mean letting go of love or of our connections to others. Underlying the Dalai Lama's method for achieving happiness is a profound belief in the value of compassion. Compassion, he says, is based on the very nature of reality, on the interconnectedness of all creation and the basic goodness of human beings. He asks us to think about the times we've been compassionate and how it made us feel. It gives us a positive, connected, open feeling, a deep sense of happiness. And feeling happy makes us more likely to act kindly towards others, making the whole interconnected web in which we live a happier place. Happiness involves developing compassion towards all sentient beings, all creatures who are able to feel and perceive. Life in all its dappledness. When I've taken my students to soup kitchens, such as our own Friday night supper program here at Arlington Street Church, to serve their fellow Bostonians who are homeless, without denying the sadness they see and feel, they invariably feel a positive afterwards. They feel an appreciation for what they have, a warm connection with and a greater understanding with other people, and also greater faith in their abilities to participate positively in people's lives. One of the inner, internal sources of happiness that the Dalai Lama points to is a sense of self-worth. He connects this not to our own individual achievements and ways that we've been recognized by others as distinct and worthy, but to recognizing that we are a part of the community of human, human beings. We are each human beings within the interdependent human community. We share that bond, and it gives us worth. I think from our Western Unitarian Universalist standpoint, we often approach our principles of the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings and the interdependent web of ex existence 
We often approach these principles as something, us, that, something that each of us, as separate individuals who already have proven our worth, are supposed to recognize about other human beings and about the rest of creation. But the Dalai Lama puts it the other way around. That we are a part of the human being and the interdependent web of creation is what gives us our worth. There is nothing we have to prove in order to be a part of this web. We only have to realize that we are. And the more deeply and truly we realize this, the more compassionate and thus the more happy we will be. But really, is it worth it? This whole pursuit of happiness? It sounds like a lot of work with all this delving into oneself to gain self-knowledge, cultivating compassion, not to mention continually working to create a society where everyone has the freedom to pursue happiness. It sounds like an awful lot of headache and heartache to me. And do we really become happy? Perhaps there is nothing really there. Maybe I should just take my two kinds of ice cream and be done with it. Well, you know, maybe there are indeed days when that is all we can ask for. But perhaps when I'm sitting there grumping about the melting of my double scoop two flavored ice cream cone, I will notice a small finch edging near, dragging a hurt wing, a dappled black and white wing. Perhaps looking at the finch and its wing, I will appreciate the freedom I have, even the freedom to buy an ice cream cone. And I will remember the many guests at the soup kitchens who welcomed me and each other and shared and expressed such thankfulness for their food. And I will think of the many here and around the world whose freedom to pursue happiness is so limited. And perhaps I will appreciate that dripping ice cream cone with two kinds of ice cream, and the cows that made the milk, and the farmers and dairy product workers who made the ice cream, and the grass that fed the cows, and the sun that nurtured the grass, and the sun that is melting the ice cream. And perhaps I will feel compassion for the finch, and an open, warm, and connected feeling will rise in me, happiness. And I will reach out in kindness to the finch. Maybe happiness is all the little experiences, the little happenings of life, but not just having them, but appreciating them. Maybe happiness is something both we can work for and something that is up to chance, to the will of the gods. And we experience glimpses of it if we are open to catching it when it comes. Happiness is perhaps like light, both a particle and a wave. We enjoy the particles, the moments of happiness that come our way. And the more we are aware of the wave in which the particles move, the more happiness we can experience. 
Perhaps that is why Gerard Manley Hopkins was able to be happy at the end of his life and able to praise all the dappledness of life despite the many particles of sadness that he endured. And the wave, I believe, rolls toward a world where all this dappled life is free to be happy. I'll leave you with one more image. I worked one summer with an eight-year-old blind girl I'll call Karen. She, along with all the sighted children at the camp, made kites one day, gluing shapes and putting sparkles of color on the kites. Then all the children lined up to run along and get their kites flying up in the air. It was a flat, flat grassy era, era, area, and so Karen started running. She ran and she ran, her unseen kite flying out behind her, laughing and laughing with pure happiness.